Well, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. This morning we are considering together verse 12. Ephesians 6 verse 12. Once again, I hope uh, the, the feeling is mutual, that it is uh, truly the highlight of my week to be here with you, worshiping the name of our Lord Jesus Christ together, celebrating the gospel of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In my relatively short years of pastoral ministry, I have been approached several times by several different people who in several different ways have asked me one common question. And is this, why is it that I simply can't defeat sin in my life once and for all? And I believe if we are honest with ourselves, we all have struggled with the same question at different times in our Christian walk. And it is a very important question indeed. And for the most part, this is a question that comes from truth. Jesus did die for our sins once and for all. Why can we defeat sin once and for all? Jesus did rise from the dead once and for all. How come we are not enjoying the full benefits of this amazing cosmic victory right now? Moreover, the Holy Spirit has taken up residency residence within us, why do we need to still struggle with so much evil and wickedness in our own lives? And obviously, if we could expand on that one common question, we would notice a full range of issues that are being addressed. For instance, why is it that I continue to question the truths of scripture in my life? Why is it that I keep falling into this or that specific sin? Why is it that so many of my relationships can be given to conflict? And even at times, my relationship with God feels like it's in turmoil. turmoil. Why is it that my faith at times grows weaker? Why is it that sometimes the reality of salvation seems so distant and even lost in the midst of the chaos of my life and the world? And why is it that the word of God doesn't always seem to have an effect on me? Do you see what all those questions and issues have in common? They are all issues related to the armor of God. Our struggle in the Christian life will always include truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Therefore, Paul will provide us with a very crucial part of the answer, not exhaustively, but part of the answer to all these questions in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. This morning, we will give our attention to three points that I believe the apostle is making here. First, he will point us to one undeniable fact of the Christian life. Then he will remind us of one critical clarification for sanctification. And finally, one indispensable reminder for battle effectiveness. My prayer is that the Lord will use this to further encourage us and equip us as we 
faithfully walk and serve the Lord in this world. So let's consider the first point. One undeniable fact of the Christian life. Now it is true that all Christians should desire to walk in holiness. There's no question about this. Therefore, these common questions that we just considered a few moments ago are not only common, but they are expected. We should ask ourselves these types of questions. Nevertheless, if we are not careful in how we answer these questions, we could be led into dangerous errors regarding the Christian life. Let me just point out one such error, which came to be known as higher life theology. How many of you have heard of higher life theology? Okay, this is going to be interesting. Not very many of you. Higher life theology uh, has a rather long and somewhat difficult to trace history. It's also related to the holiness movement and perfectionism. The roots can be traced all the way back to John Wesley and his teachings, particular his teachings on holiness. Eventually, John Wesley's teachings became mixed with other theological tendencies that were taking place in America, and the higher life theology was born. The heart of this theology was popularized in a slogan that I have already mentioned at least once in the past, and you know what that is. That's right. You got it right here. Let go. Dr. Kreider is <laughs> with me. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. Those five words sum up what many of the people involved in this movement believed about sanctification. Let go and let God. These five words were at the core of what they called the moment of crisis. The moment of crisis in the Christian life. What they meant by that, the moment of crisis, was when a Christian really yielded his life or her life to God in obedience. Therefore, for, for the higher life theology movement, there were two kinds of Christians, the carnal and the spiritual. The carnal is the one who is saved through faith in Jesus, but he's still bound to sin and he sees little to no victory over temptations. But according to this tendency, this theological framework, he's still a Christian. The spiritual Christian is the one who has gone through the moment of crisis, meaning he has let go and let God and has therefore reached a higher level of holiness in his life. But the key to this holy life is passivity. You have to be passive, not activity, which is reflected in the word let, just let go and let God. It's, it's all about being passive. This higher life theology promoted a, a form of quietism. Just, just stay put, sit in your couch, take it all in. Listen to this quote from one of the main proponents of this theology. This is what he said regarding holiness in the Christian life. And I quote, it is not by straining and struggling that this blessed condition is brought about. Instead, just lie quietly before him, open all the avenues of your being, and let him come in and take possession of every chamber. End quote. Let go and let God. Problematic? To say the least, this type of theology denies the one undeniable fact of the Christian life. 
What is the one undeniable fact of the Christian life? Here it is. We wrestle. We wrestle. In other words, in this life, there is no way to reach a spiritual level in which the spiritual battle simply goes away. We wrestle, or as the New American Standard Bible says, our struggle. Our struggle. The Bible knows nothing about this quietism and passivity. Holiness in the Christian life is, and it always will be, a struggle. Hence, hence the analogy used by the Apostle Paul, wrestling. Do we have any wrestlers here? We all are. This is at least in part why we at times question the truth of Scripture. Why we at times fall into specific sins. Why we at times see conflict in our relationships. Why we at times experience weakness in our faith. Why we at times fail to appreciate our salvation and we become hopeless. And why we at times struggle to see the effects of the word of God in us. Because we wrestle. Please notice several truths from those two words. We wrestle. Let me point out a few. Consider this, the reality of spiritual battle. Christian, you don't get a choice in this matter. I hope you notice this, right? I hope you know this. Paul is not asking you whether or not you want to engage in spiritual battle. He's not asking you, hey, are you up for this? Paul is simply pointing to the fact, the reality that you are already engaged in battle. He didn't say some of us wrestle. He said, we wrestle. You are wrestling. For me to stand before you this morning and tell you to let go and let God would be an affront to how the Apostle Paul himself understood the Christian life. Consider next the comprehensiveness of spiritual battle. Notice, please, that Paul didn't say we arm wrestle. That'll be one thing. We arm wrestle. Neither did he say we are boxing. I suppose he could have used those analogies. Rather, we wrestle. Wrestling assumes that the entire body is going to get involved. This is why when Jacob wrestled against God, his hip was put out of joint. Wrestling involves the entire body. Now that my son is bigger and stronger, he's looking down because he's being put on the spot. We sometimes wrestle. But he's getting stronger, so now wrestling uh, requires a little more caution on my part. <laughs> because if I don't pay attention, it results in painful things. And, and I know, I know that for, for a fact. It used to be that I could exert just a little bit of force and the wrestling would cease. Now it feels like no amount of force can make him stop. <laughs> and the wrestling now involves my entire body. Every time we wrestle, we, we, we have to engage the entire body we both have to use almost every muscle to rise to victory, although I am undefeated. <laughs> but here's the point. In this spiritual wrestling, listen to this, everything about you is involved. Everything about you is involved. But we can be more specific. And based on the armor of God and the schemes of the devil that we saw last week, we know that the primary targets in this wrestling are always going to be the truth you know, the righteousness that you desire, the gospel in which you believe, 
the faith which you possess, the salvation which you have, and the word of God to which you want to submit. It is all of it. There is no area of the Christian life that is not exposed and involved in this wrestling. Therefore, we need the whole armor of God, all of it. Consider also the intimacy of the spiritual battle. It is intimate. Wrestling is about close contact. You don't wrestle from a distance. In wrestling, you are literally as close to your opponent as you can possibly be. This is personal, my brothers and sisters. There is an enemy that is constantly engaging you in battle. Are you aware of this? Consider this, the individuality, individuality of the spiritual battle. Wrestling is also fought individually. You don't get others to fight your battle. If you are wrestling, then you are wrestling. You are wrestling, not someone else. Others can support you. Others can encourage you, but the fighting is done by the individual. This is the nature of wrestling. This further means, in a practical sense, that you cannot just delegate your spiritual health to someone else. You can't pretend to be spiritually strong is if all you're doing is trusting that one sermon will be enough for the rest of the week. And that's coming from me. I can guarantee you it's not enough. You must take ownership for your spiritual life and your spiritual health. You must be solidified in the truth. You must grow in righteousness. You must believe in the gospel. You must grow in the faith. You must take hold of the hope of salvation and you must know, trust and obey the word of God. Yes, we are the people of God and we are here to encourage one another, but wrestling is individual. And consider finally the permanency of the spiritual battle, the permanency we wrestle, not we have, or we will, Rather, we wrestle. In other words, don't plan on wrestling to go away. As long as you are alive, the fighting will go on. Consider number two, main point, one critical clarification for sanctification. Notice what Paul said. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. This is a critical clarification for sanctification because this is the main thing we are quick to forget. Now, what is the meaning of flesh and blood? Well, first of all, let us not make the mistake of confusing our terms. This is what I mean. We do have an enemy and it is called the flesh. Let us not confuse those. We do have an enemy. It's called the flesh, but this flesh refers to that principle of corruption and indwelling sin that is still present in all of us who have been born again. This is not a second nature. We only have one new nature, the one that has been created after the likeness of God. But the flesh, therefore, is a reference to this corrupt principle that is still operative within us. We have been born again to a new life, but corruption still lingers. And at times, it makes our lives miserable. The flesh is also called the old man or the old self, which we must mortify. And we wrestle against that. Therefore, the the apostle Paul is not contradicting himself at this point. Rather, he's using a different term. When he talks about flesh and blood, 
He is speaking not of this inner principle of corruption within us, but about that which is earthly, namely humanity. Humanity. This is the critical clarification for sanctification. It is critical because forgetting this can make us miserable. Consider, for example, what the Lord Jesus said as Pilate was questioning him. Do you remember that part of the the story of the Gospels? Pilate said to Jesus, your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? How did Jesus reply? My kingdom is what? Not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not from this world. In other words, it is as though Jesus were saying to Pilate, the battle that I came to win is of a different nature. It is one you cannot see. Another perfect example of this is what we read in the book of Matthew chapter 16. We saw this this morning if you were here for Sunday school. Uh, remember Peter's confession. What did he say to, to the Lord Jesus? Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And how did Jesus respond to that? Blessed are you, Simon. And then what did he say? For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What is the contrast? Well, flesh and blood means you didn't come up with, with about this or with this truth on your own. It wasn't human philosophy. It wasn't human reasoning. It came from an invisible reality, namely my father who is in heaven. Therefore, flesh and blood is a reference to anything that is human. That is bound to this world, visible, tangible. Now this, my friends, might just be one of the truths we are most likely to forget in times of disagreement, chaos, and crisis. What if, what if the reason why some Christians are right now miserable is because they have forgotten that the real fight is not flesh and blood? Some of you maybe have forgotten that the enemy is not flesh and blood. And and I will develop that a little later on. And consider finally, point number three, one indispensable reminder for battle effectiveness. We wrestle, said Paul, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, today more than ever, we need to remember this one truth. We desperately need this one reminder. We wrestle against invisible forces of evil not flesh and blood. It is all too easy to point fingers as, at two people and identify them as enemies. This is, after all, our human nature. We go by what we see, yet the call of faith is to not walk by sight. So notice first, the invisible nature of our foe, our true enemy, invisible. They cannot be seen. Part of living by faith is this, living with a constant awareness of that reality which our eyes cannot perceive. It is an invisible reality. We cannot forget this. Second, notice the comprehensive and quite astonishing reach of these powers and principalities. They are cosmic and they are over this present darkness, says the Apostle Paul. The whole world is under their influence. 
It seems like no sphere of human existence is free from their potential influence. Notice third, third, even though there are many theories as to what these principalities and powers are, I am convinced that these are references to personal beings, personal beings as opposed to simply evil energies. These are evil beings with their own personalities, their own attributes, and with the ability to scheme. They can think, they can devise a plan, and they can even take steps to make it happen. There is intelligence behind these principalities. This is confirmed in the way Paul spoke of these rulers and authorities in chapter 3, verse 10. If you want to read that with me in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Notice how the apostle Paul spoke about these rulers and authorities in that particular verse. He's talking about the wisdom of God. And here's what he said. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why is that important? Well, how can the manifold wisdom of God be made known to these rulers and authorities if they are not actual beings capable of knowing these are individual beings who have personalities and a will notice number four, the, the hatred of Satan and these principalities for these, I, I need to draw your attention to the last few hours of our Lord's life. When the guards came with Judas to arrest the Lord Jesus, after betraying him, Jesus said to them, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, the power of darkness. It is of interest that Jesus spoke of the power of darkness as the force behind the betrayal of J Judas and the plot to kill him. This is not just random power, my brothers and sisters. It is intentional, purposeful, evil. Behind the plot to betray and kill Jesus was Satan himself, who entered into Judas and moved him in his desired direction. Such is Satan's hatred. And these principalities and powers and authorities are all under the same hatred of God. Consider number five, the power and intention of Satan and these principalities. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 26. I want to show you some astonishing description of the power of Satan and these principalities. Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 16. This is the call of Paul. Paul is sharing his testimony. He's, he's telling us what happened to him, his conversion. And this is what the Lord Jesus told him. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. The Gentiles. I'm sending you to the Gentiles. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. 
Consider also 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How revealing. Listen, Satan doesn't need to possess people. He only needs to deceive them and prevent them from seeing the truth of the gospel. Know this, my friends, Satan is not always in the business of sending persecution against the church, although he can do that. His main weapon, his main weapon has to do with confusing the truth. This is what these powers and authorities and principalities are doing in the world. They're confusing the truth. Their number one desire is to confuse people and lead them away from the truth and make no mistake about it. Their reach and influence is so widespread that they can infuse that confusion through politicians, through policy, through government agencies, through religious organizations, and yes, even through churches. Some churches, after all, are called the synagogues of Satan. Yes, brothers and sisters, pastors, elders, denominational leaders can all be used to spread confusion regarding biblical truth. I am seeing that happening right now. Not right here, but right now, just to avoid confusion. <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard several sermons coming from people in prominent places spreading confusion. These are the entities that we wrestle with, not flesh and blood, but in, invisible beings of wickedness. Now, why does it matter that we know all this? Why does it matter that we know the reality of spiritual wrestling? Why does it matter that we know that it is not against flesh and blood and the spiritual nature of this battle? Well, let me give you just a few points for further consideration. In your notes, you can follow along if you want. First, consider this. In our wrestling against spiritual forces of evil, we need to recognize our individuality, but always with a view to strengthen the collective. Let me explain what I mean. Think about the following. Doesn't it seem a bit strange that Paul uses the word wrestling while at the same time calling us to put on the whole armor of God? What I mean is that wrestling is not something that you do with an armor on. In fact, wrestling as a sport was done with as little clothing as possible. How do we reconcile this idea of wrestling with the idea of putting on a full armor? It sounds uncomfortable if you talk about wrestling. Well, if you think about it, this is how many battles were fought. The soldiers, as, as part of the army, would be fully armed as this would protect them from arrows and other potential ha hazards in the battlefield. But eventually... And almost inevitably, most soldiers would end up having to engage in one-on-one, hand-to-hand combat. And at no point during that fight would you want the armor off. Now, what is the application? The application is this. The church, as the body of Christ, is at war. We are at war as the body of Christ. And we must endure the constant attacks of enemy forces collectively. This is why we collectively 
gather as the people of God on Sunday mornings. This is why we collectively sing to God on Sundays. This is why we collectively remind ourselves of the truth and we encourage one another. However, what is also true is that this war is inevitably fought at the individual level as each member of the body of Christ wrestles for the sake of truth, for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of faith, for the sake of salvation in Christ, and for the sake of the word of God. Here, represented this morning, are many different contexts, and we all wrestle separately, but also for the sake of the collective. Do you see the implications of this? In our individual individuality, we cannot forget our commonality, which means this. As we live our individual Christian lives, we must also seek to grow in our common convictions. As you wrestle in your own spiritual life, you also need me to wrestle well. Because at the end of the day, you can benefit from my personal and my individual establishment in the truth. For my desire for righteousness, my belief in the gospel, my growth in the faith, my conviction about the hope of salvation, and my understanding of and obedience to the word of God. And there you can see is the whole armor of God. In short, if you wrestle well individually, we all benefit collectively. The opposite is also true. If you stop wrestling individually, we all suffer collectively to some degree or another. Some in this room have a very strong, very strong belt of truth. And you can be an encouragement to those who are weaker. Some in this room have a very thick breastplate of righteousness for you have been walking with the Lord for a long time and you can be an encouragement to someone else. Some in this room have a very good quality shoes of the gospel of peace in the sense that you can discern its purity and you can be an encouragement to those who are new to the faith. Some in this room have a very wide shield of faith in the sense that you are not easily shaken by the circumstances, but remain trusting and you can be an encouragement to those who are easily faint. Some in this room have a pretty good handle on the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you can also be an encouragement to those who are beginning. Consider second. Second point for you to consider is this, brothers and sisters. Since we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning humanity, please consider this. Let us not turn the mission field into the enemy field. We need to hear this today. Since we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning humanity, let us not turn the mission field into the enemy field, nor our brother into our foe. There's no point in denying that things are rapidly changing all around us. Many of us have known nothing but peace for literally decade after decade. We have been able to live the Christian life in relative comfort. But things are changing. Lines are being drawn in the sand. Tensions continue to rise. However, it is imperative that as we live our lives in this fallen world as Christians who have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't forget that sinners, sinners, people of flesh and blood are not the enemy. They are the mission field. 
Let us not forget that it was Paul who wrote these things. Why does that matter? It matters because he was in prison under Roman guard, probably in chains. If anyone would have been tempted to see the Romans, the guards, and the surrounding pagan culture as the enemies and to harbor hatred, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Yet Paul did not forget that flesh and blood is not the enemy. Moreover, herein lies the reason why Christians are called to endure suffering and persecution. Our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against, it is against that which is invisible. Brothers and sisters, let us be very careful at this point, lest we end up making war against flesh and blood. If we will fight well, we must not confuse the enemy. Forgetting the real enemy is a sure way to lose the battle. Remember Peter? We saw it this morning as well. After making one of the greatest, most foundational statements about the Lord Jesus Christ, just a few verses later, what did he say? You're, you, you, you don't need to die, Lord Jesus. And what did Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Peter. No, he didn't say that. You know why? Because Jesus knew who the enemy was. And so Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Therefore, we must labor to develop our spiritual eyes, which leads us to our third and final consideration. Let me put it this way. Let me ask you a question. What is the role of the Christian, at least in part, when he finds himself in the midst of chaos and confusion, division and ongoing and growing wickedness? Well, his role in part, at least, is to not lose sight of these principalities and powers. Listen to me closely. The world doesn't have time to even pay attention to these things. We need to realize that. The world doesn't have the mind to consider the invisible spiritual realities of evil at work. What are the chances of Congress or the Senate ever having a meeting in which they discuss Ephesians 6:12. What are the chances of a congressman ever saying, all right, let's talk about the spiritual forces of evil and the principalities that are at work among us. If you consider the equality act, that tells you immediately that they are not thinking about these things. If anything, most of the world would now consider this sermon absolute foolishness, absolute foolishness forces of evil. Give me a break. Unfortunately, I perceive that one of the biggest dangers facing the church today is this. We seem to have downplayed the perversive and insidious influences of the powers of evil at work in the world. We have be become so very focused on that which is visible. The virus and masks. That we are being distracted from one of the main sources of evil, which is invisible, namely the devil. In our wrestling against these forces, and as Paul said elsewhere, we must not be ignorant of Satan's devices. We must never forget what's truly at stake. What is at stake? Truth. Righteousness. The gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God. 
the whole armor of God. All of which, all of which are invisible realities under attack by invisible forces of wickedness. Watch and pray. My Christian friend, watch and pray. Let us finish with a note filled with hope. Turn to Colossians chapter one, and we will finish with this Colossians chapter one. I don't want you to leave this place thinking, well, this is a, an impossible battle. I want to remind you of one of the most critical truths about who we are. The powers of darkness are real, but there is something even greater. Consider the words of Paul in Colossians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. Remember this about yourself. He, meaning the father has delivered us from what? From the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our forgiveness is secured in Christ who died for our sins under the wrath of God and rose again for our justification. Now we wrestle against darkness, but we are not under its dominion anymore. You and I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. So eternal rest is coming. We will enter our rest. But for now, we wrestle, we wrestle. So let us live as though who belong, as those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this simple yet important reminder that we are indeed in a battle. That in this world, we will have tribulation and it will come from different enemies. It can come from the flesh, the world, or even Satan and these principalities and powers. Father, as we live our lives and as we seek to do so faithfully in this chaotic world, help us to not lose sight of those things which matter the most. Those things that matter the most, the truth and righteousness and the gospel of peace and salvation, faith, and the word of God. So Lord, by the power of your spirit and upon the truth of your scripture, help us to wrestle well and to give you the glory for the victory that has already been won by the Lord Jesus Christ himself upon the cross of Calvary and through his resurrection. And I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not Come to believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. I pray, Lord, that you will convict them of their sin, bring them to repentance, and give them faith, Lord, to embrace Christ Jesus as the only Lord and Savior. In all these things, we pray in the powerful and precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.